Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know? The Xbox 360 was codenamed Trinity during production. This was a reference to the character of the same name from the 1999 film The Matrix. The name symbolized the idea that the console would create an immersive and realistic world, just like The Matrix in the movie. The codename was soon changed to Xenon, as another team at Microsoft were already using Trinity for their project. Xenon is a colorless, chemically inactive gas, but the name was chosen simply because it began with an X. Microsoft considered calling the console Xbox 2 as its final name, but ultimately felt it was too predictable. They eventually settled on the name Xbox 360, as it conveyed the idea of the user being at the center of a circle. The team's philosophy was that while technological advances are impressive, they're meaningless without the users. Because of this, with the 360, they sought to create living entertainment experiences that were powered by human energy. The name Xbox 360 was tested in a public survey, with both its core audience and non-gamers being asked for their feedback. People responded well to the unconventional name, as it reminded them of positive life experiences, like kissing on a Ferris wheel. To coordinate the massive team working on the project, a design document was drafted, outlining everything Microsoft was striving for with the console. One of these goals was to make the new Xbox more of a media center, capitalizing on Microsoft's expertise with personal computers. The company even approached consumer electronics manufacturers, looking to future-proof the 360 by asking what televisions would look like in the years to come. Due to the team's massive size, there were a number of information leaks leading up to the console's reveal. But again, due to the team's size, it was impossible to trace where the leaks came from. While these leaks initially upset the team, they may have been a blessing in disguise, generating hype around the console's reveal on MTV in 2005. Designing the 360 was a layered and competitive process. Microsoft hired both Hers Experimental Design Laboratory Incorporated, located in Osaka, and Astro Studios, located in San Francisco, to design the machine. Each firm would present their concept and be shown the other's idea before revisions were made. It was after around six to eight repetitions of this cycle that the look was finalized. It was partly as a result of this rigorous process that the Xbox 360 suffered its most infamous flaw, dubbed the Red Ring of Death, which indicated that there was an internal fault. Getting a red ring would require the console to be sent back to Microsoft for repairs. While hers and Astro Studios had succeeded in creating a sleek, elegant design, it was in some ways impractical. Engineers struggled to fit all the required features into such a small space. The shape restricted heat flow, putting pressure on many components. One particular problem was that the ATI graphics chip would often overheat, damaging the motherboard. 
the defect rate was incredibly high, estimated to be around 30% of all units. Microsoft were aware of these hardware issues. An anonymous engineer told VentureBeat that early on, failure rates were as high as 68%. However, they did not delay the console's launch. Their strategy depended on an early launch for the system, and they believed the problems would be ironed out over time. Unfortunately, this wasn't entirely the case. The Red Ring epidemic became so widespread that Microsoft took drastic measures, offering a formal apology in the form of an open letter and extending the console's warranty from one year to three. They even shut down production from January to June 2007 as they solved the problem. More radically, they spent $1.15 billion in shipping and repairing broken consoles, promising users that affected units would be returned free of charge in three weeks. When Microsoft executive Peter Moore told Chief Executive Officer Steve Ballmer how much the repair scheme would cost them, Ballmer's response was an immediate, do it. Moore speculated that if Ballmer wasn't so decisive, the Xbox brand would have been irreparably damaged and might not even exist today. In 2001, Sony partnered with Toshiba and IBM to create a processor for the console that would become the PlayStation 3. The design process for this chip cost Sony $400 million over a period of five years, and they intended to launch the console in Christmas 2005. In late 2002, Microsoft also approached IBM with an offer to develop a chip for the console that would become the Xbox 360. IBM showed Microsoft the specifications for the cell processor they were developing for Sony. Microsoft were impressed and contracted IBM to build them a chip around the same technology. Sony, Toshiba, and IBM had agreed that they'd be able to sell the chip to other companies, but Sony evidently didn't consider that this might include their rival. Effectively, Sony's R&D money was funding parts for the Xbox 360 as well. To add insult to injury, IBM's first manufacturing run of both chips was defective, and while Microsoft had ordered backups from a third party in advance, Sony had not. As a result, Microsoft got chips that Sony had funded earlier than even Sony did. This was a contributing factor towards the Xbox 360 launching a year ahead of the PS3. The Xbox 360's Kinect originally went under the codename Project Natal, and was named so because a key member on the project was from the Brazilian city of Natal. The word also means birth, which the developers felt was appropriate, thinking of the Kinect as the birth of the next generation of home entertainment. The peripheral was intended to broaden the appeal of the 360, which until that point had largely targeted hardcore gamers. The standard controller was thought to be too complicated for the average person to understand. However, the Kinect was controlled by moving and speaking, which Microsoft thought would be less alien to consumers. It was also seen as a way to extend the lifespan of the 360, which had been on the market for five years by the time the Kinect launched. The Kinect became the fastest-selling consumer electronic device in history, selling 8 million units in its first 60 days. The peripheral also received some attention for its military potential. While the Kinect had several military applications, one of its most notable uses was for the U.S. Navy, who actually used Kinect sensors and simulations. One of their simulations was made to teach sailors about and prevent harassment and sexual assault. Throughout the 360's lifespan, there have been several exclusively produced consoles. A less sentimental but more exclusive piece of Xbox hardware is the most expensive Kinect peripheral, which was worth around $1,242. It was inspired by singer Kylie Minogue and featured over 6,000 Swarovski crystals. The device was designed by Playbling and was given out as a part of a promotion by Microsoft and Dance Central in celebration of Kylie Minogue's upcoming European tour. But even this expensive add-on pales in comparison to the most expensive 360 cosmetic, a $36,000 24-karat gold faceplate. In this episode, we'll be exploring some trivia for the most successful Xbox console thus far, the Xbox 360. 
The system sold a whopping 85 million units in its lifetime, more than the combined sales of both the original Xbox and Xbox One. The 360 was released in November of 2005 as part of the seventh generation of video game consoles, and was in direct competition with the Nintendo Wii and PlayStation 3. There's since been over 1,000 titles released for the platform, not including the hundreds of Xbox Live Arcade games. One of the system's most defining games was Gears of War, which was responsible for Microsoft choosing to include the massive 512 megabytes of RAM that would ship with the console. Legend has it that during the game's early development showcasing the ability of the Unreal Engine 3, there had been enough positive feedback about the game's visual realism that Mark Rain and Tim Sweeney used this to push Microsoft to double the amount of RAM that the console would hold, which was originally planned to be 256 megabytes. This decision allegedly cost the company a lot of money. In a Q&A at a community event in Canada, Rain explained, so we argued and argued, and what Tim did is he actually sent a screenshot of what Gears of War would look like if we only had 256 megs of memory. And then I got a call from the chief financial officer of Microsoft Game Studios, and he said, I just want you to know, you cost me a billion dollars. And I said, we did a favor for a billion gamers. It reduced the amount of consoles they could sell on release, but it meant that Gears of War and future 360 titles would be able to use higher resolution textures. Something else that cost a pretty penny was the mother-of-pearl inlaid Xbox 360s that Bill Gates personally commissioned. Created with the intention of being gifts for VIP friends of Gates, he most famously gave one to the then-president of South Korea, Lee Myung-bak, while paying him a visit in May 2008. They were designed by mother-of-pearl artist Kim Yong-jun and produced by Kim's manufacturing company, Gukbo Art. The consoles featured imagery of ume flowers and butterflies, representing peace and perseverance, with the final product being called Peace. At the time, only three of the special consoles were made, one for Gates, one for the President, and one for Kim. Since then, however, 100 more have been commissioned for production. There's been a few less-than-friendly acts surrounding the 360 as well. Richard Robinson of the MKR Group, who hold the rights for George Romero's film, Dawn of the Dead, attempted to sue Capcom for copyright infringement in 2008. The lawsuit claimed that Dead Rising, which was a 360 exclusive at the time, was just a video game version of Dawn of the Dead. To back up their claim, they listed several similarities between the two titles, such as both works are set in a bi-level shopping mall. Both works are set in motion by a helicopter that takes the lead characters to a mall besieged by zombies. Many of the zombies wear plaid shirts. Both works use music in the mall for comedic effect. Both works are a parody of rampant consumerism. The dispute had been going on for a while, with Capcom even placing a disclaimer on the Dead Rising box, denying any relation to the original movie. Eventually coming to a head in February of that year, the case was handled by United States Magistrate Judge Richard Seaborg, who, after several months of back and forths, dismissed the case. Seaborg agreed with Capcom's motion that, the few similarities MKR has alleged are driven by the wholly unprotectable concept of humans battling zombies in a mall during a zombie outbreak. It wasn't all smiles and rainbows for Capcom, though, as much of the evidence they produced was thrown out due to being direct copies from Wikipedia. 
Dawn of the Dead is far from the only IP to be referenced in the Dead Rising series. In Dead Rising 2 Case West, there is an underground tunnel located beneath the holding pens of the Thenotrans facility. Here, written on the wall, are the words, Don't startle the wit with bloody handprints nearby and a vent beneath that leads to the sewers. If the player listens carefully, it's possible to hear the faint cries of a girl through the grate, a reference to the infamous witch zombie from Valve's Left 4 Dead series. And now going from killing zombies to killing a franchise, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts was one of the last games Rare developed before being forced to invest their next few years in Kinect sports releases. Nuts and Bolts has many references to Rare's past works, including nods to Banjo-Kazooie with things like Stop and Swap. Just for those who don't know, the Stop and Swap mechanic was an unused method of transferring information between Nintendo 64 cartridges. The user would remove a cartridge, then swap in a new one, and the newly inserted game would read some information left in the N64's RAM from the previous cartridge. Because the feature was never implemented in the game, the mystery of Banjo-Kazooie's Stop and Swap content was often discussed by fans, which was ultimately referenced in Nuts and Bolts. In the game, if the player goes to Showdown Town, they can find the Tourist Information Center. Here, the player can talk to Bottles, who will exchange information for notes. One piece of information, labeled Stop and Swap Truth, can be purchased for 6,000 notes. However, there are only 5,230 notes in the game, making it impossible to purchase. This is unless you hack the game. Players discovered that purchasing the information is coded into the game, and can be bought if the note counter is increased to over 6,000. After purchasing the note, Bottles will say, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, and we couldn't show that in a game with this rating. Put it out of your mind and think happy thoughts. Thanks for the notes. Another rare title, Cameo Elements of Power, had a notoriously long development process. The game was originally planned for release on Nintendo 64, and then the GameCube, then the Xbox, and finally found its way to the Xbox 360. It was actually considered as a potential launch title for the GameCube, and earlier versions of the game had a much more Nintendo feel to them. Players would catch creatures, evolve them, and raise them into adulthood, with them following the player during gameplay and acting of their own volition. Most of these Pokemon-esque mechanics were scrapped when development moved to the Xbox. However, Rare's love of referencing its other games was not. Using the Thermite's Lava Bomb ability to blow up the door to the house in the Forgotten Forest Glade, the player can activate a small radio inside that plays a rock version of the Banjo-Kazooie theme tune. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Speaking of blowing things up, in 2006, Hudson released Bomberman Act Zero. It already seemed to be the era of gritty remakes of old classics, with James Bond Casino Royale being released that same year, and Batman Begins the year before. 
Hudson also wanted to jump on the bandwagon and did away with the iconic fun-loving Bomberman we all know, replacing it with a darker, more dystopian aesthetic. The concept still did not stray far from the original. Taking inspiration from descriptions found in the manual for the Famicom Classic, the team took the premise of the Bomberman escaping from a cramped underground dwelling and gave it a realistic twist. Unfortunately, the game performed so badly upon release and received such negative reviews that Hudson had no choice but to acknowledge it with a satirical short within an advertisement for their next Bomberman product, Bomberman Live, on XBLA. But the question now comes down to, man, which version do we make? Do we make old cute classic Bomberman or radically post-apocalyptic Bomberman? What's the choice? Well, as long as we make it a single-player game for a console, then I think we should go to post-apocalyptic Bomberman. Easter eggs and references like this aren't uncommon in the Halo franchise either. In fact, Halo 3 has a very specific Easter egg that took seven years to come to light. The secret can be found by setting the Xbox 360's internal clock to December 25th, then booting up Halo 3 and loading any campaign level. From here, if they press both analog sticks down, the loading screen will start up with a much wider shot. By looking closely, it's possible to see the words Happy Birthday Lauren spelled out on the ring's surface. This hidden message was put in the game by Adrian Perez, who dedicated it to his wife, Lauren. Even the beta of Halo 3 had easter eggs and references. The beta included an achievement called Chaney Mania. This was unlocked by killing 10 opponents in a row with the shotgun without dying. This is a reference to George Bush Jr's Vice President Dick Chaney, who accidentally shot someone with a shotgun. Did you know? The title of The Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion was teased in the 1998 adventure game The Elder Scrolls Adventures Redguard. This was four years before the release of Morrowind and seven and a half years before Oblivion. There's also a few references to Redguard in Oblivion. The main character of Redguard, Cyrus, is referenced by first mate Malvulus, who sings a song about him. Sail on, my Cyrus, sail on. One of the blades protecting Martin at Cloud Ruler Temple is also named Cyrus. The plot of Oblivion was further teased in Morrowind's Tribunal expansion. The character Eno Romari talks about the gates of Oblivion opening and the invasion of the Daedra. Oblivion was first revealed in 2004, but the public didn't get a good look at the game until E3 the following year. Oblivion's E3 2005 demo showed a new system called Radiant AI, which gave non-playable characters general goals. How these goals were achieved was determined by the AI and various in-game values. The system had problems when it was first implemented, as there were no real rules for the characters to follow, only goals to achieve. This caused many problems, including questlines being broken. One example is that a character in important to the Dark Brotherhood questline would be found dead. The character was also a skooma dealer, and were actually being killed by other characters who wanted their fix of skooma. As a result, many of the behaviours of Radiant AI had to be toned down in the final release. Other changes were made in development. A PSP version was planned for release around April 2007, but was scrapped. According to official PlayStation magazine, it lacked the free-roaming gameplay the series was known for, and felt more like a dungeon romp. Although the English version of Oblivion was well-produced, other language versions didn't quite get the same treatment. The Spanish translation of the game in particular was poorly made. The Spanish localization team mistook the verb to train, as in to practice, with the vehicle, train, like a choo-choo train. 
This led to some strange and confusing dialogue about land vehicles in a world that had none. The game has a small nod to the first title in the series, The Elder Scrolls Arena. During the Rose Thorn Cache, the player will have to solve the riddle, Two bodies I have, though both joined in one, the more I stand still, the quicker I run. The very same riddle appeared in Elder Scrolls Arena, with the solution being Hourglass. Posters at the Imperial City Arena also reference the box art for Elder Scrolls Arena. Interestingly, Oblivion's Arena is a remnant of a much larger questline that was cut during development. The team originally planned to have an arena in each of Cyrodiil's major cities. By cutting out these other arenas, they removed around 800 lines of dialogue. Two of the game's shops, The Main Ingredient and Three Brothers, get their names from real-world restaurants. Both restaurants are located in Maryland, the home of Bethesda Game Studios. As another real-world reference, the Council of the Dark Brotherhood, the Black Hand, gets its name from a Serbian secret society first established in 1911. Alternatively known as Unification or Death, the group gained widespread notoriety in 1914. During that year, several of its members carried out a successful assassination attempt on Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. This single act of violence is widely considered the catalyst for the First World War. There's a bridge near Breville that has the remains of a dead troll beneath it. The scene is reminiscent of Three Billy Goats Gruff, which tells the story of three goats trying to pass a gluttonous troll. The goats speak to the troll one at a time, and each recommends that the troll eats the next goat, as they'd make a bigger and better meal. The last goat that approaches the troll is big enough to overpower it, and knocks it into the water below. If the player examines the troll, they'll find a poorly written note on its body that reads, Me worst troll ever. Nobody pay bridge toll. Me not scare enough. Me get drunk and kill self. Troll drown. The Elder Scrolls games are no strangers to referencing other popular series. During the quest Unfriendly Competition, the player encounters a book known as the Macabre Manifest. This text contains a catalogue of the recently perished, one of whom is named Oford Gabings. Among his possessions were items such as a travel cloak with silver and green leaf fastener, an enchanted short sword with inlaid writing, a leather-bound travel journal, and a gold ring with inscription, which is cursed. This collection of items is strikingly similar to several important items belonging to Frodo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings. Oford Gabings is also an anagram of Frodo Baggins. Another reference to The Lord of the Rings lies in the Dark Brotherhood quest, A Knife in the Dark, which is named after the 11th chapter of the first book. Aside from the name, the goal of the quest is to murder a man in his sleep at an inn. These circumstances mirror the events of the chapter of the same name, where the main characters are almost murdered as they sleep at an inn. Oblivion even references other games. A glass shield simply named Mirror Shield can be found in Oblivion. It's believed this is a reference to the Mirror Shield from the Legend of Zelda series, as both have the ability to reflect magic. There's also another video game reference in a quest at Battlehorn Castle. In the quest, the player finds that the castle's lord, Cain, was resurrected by a necromancer after falling in a battle. This story is very similar to the Legacy of Cain series, where a nobleman named Cain is resurrected by the necromancer Mortanius. In Oblivion's Shivering Isles expansion, there seems to be a reference to the video game show Consolvania. In Consolvania's Elder Scrolls episode, Rab states that he used telekinesis to put shoes on the rooftops of buildings. In the Shivering Isles, there's a pair of shoes next to a remote manipulation scroll on the roof of the Museum of Oddities. 
In June 2008, a point-and-click adventure game titled Limbo of the Lost released on PC. Later that month, Gameplasma posted an article showing the environments in Limbo of the Lost were identical to areas in Oblivion. This included places like Castle Skingrad, Five Claws Lodge, and the Office of Imperial Commerce. After the article was published, the gaming community found the developers of Limbo of the Lost had plagiarized assets from at least 15 other games, and this wasn't the only time Oblivion's assets were used in other media. In early 2013, North Korea used Oblivion's main theme in an anti-American propaganda video. The music played in the background as images of American soldiers and a video of President Obama were shown surrounded by flames. Did you know? Bethesda was approached to make a Game of Thrones RPG, but turned down the offer to focus on creating Skyrim. The team was asked to make the official games based on George R.R. Martin's A Song of Fire and Ice fantasy novels. They were excited upon getting the offer, but ultimately decided to focus on their own fantasy worlds instead. When designing the world of Skyrim, Bethesda opted for a different approach to what they took with Oblivion. In particular, Skyrim's art director, Matt Carafano, considered the more surreal design of Skyrim's world a departure from Oblivion's generic representation of classic European fantasy. Skyrim's director, Todd Howard, expressed how the team desired to re-encapsulate the wonder of discovery found in Morrowind's game world. If they returned to the traditional fantasy themes found in the Elder Scrolls Arena and Daggerfall like they did with Oblivion, it would mean sacrificing the chance to make a world with a unique culture. Skyrim has other connections with Morrowind. The downloadable expansion for Skyrim, Dragonborn, contains many of the music tracks found in the Elder Scrolls III Morrowind. This seems fitting as Dragonborn is in Solstheim, which is in close proximity to Morrowind. After considering who should compose the music of Skyrim, Bethesda opted to bring back Jeremy Sewell to compose the game's music, as he'd also worked on Morrowind and Oblivion. He composed the game's main theme, Dragonborn. Dragonborn was recorded with a choir of over 30 people singing in the game's dragon language. Todd Howard wanted the theme for Skyrim to be similar to the Elder Scrolls theme, but sung by a massive choir of barbarians. This became a reality when the idea was passed by Sewell, who recorded the 30-man choir and layered the three separate recordings to create the effect of having 90 individual voices. The Elder Scrolls series has a history of making use of limited resources. In fact, just one team member was charged with designing every dungeon in Oblivion, and a small team of eight people were tasked with designing Skyrim's 150 dungeons. The amount of follower NPCs also increased in Skyrim over Oblivion in Morrowind. One of these NPCs is Eric the Slayer. Eric the Slayer is named after Eric West, whose online alias was Imok the Slayer. Bethesda was so impressed with his knowledge of Oblivion that they gave him an in-depth tour of Bethesda. Bethesda Studios and decided to create a character based on Eric and Skyrim. Eric died of cancer in May of 2011 and never got to see the release of Skyrim. The tour of Bethesda's workplace was set up by the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which ultimately immortalized Eric in the land of Tamriel. Skyrim is known for its large amount of pop culture and other video game references, but its more interesting easter eggs are the ones involving other Elder Scroll games. One example of this is Shiogorath's dialogue in Skyrim. His dialogue may suggest that he's the hero of Kavach, or, in other words, the main protagonist in Oblivion that became Shiogorath during the events of the Shivering Isles expansion. This idea is suggested by Shiogorath himself, first with his mention of having been at the Oblivion Crisis for that whole sordid affair, he 
also mentions butterflies, blood, a fox, a severed head, and cheese. The subtitles also show that there's a capital F in fox as if it's in reference to a name. These mentions are likely nods to the butterfly intro sequence in Shivering Isles, the blood of the Daedra Divine's main quest, the leader of the Cyrodiil Thieves Guild, the Grey Fox, and the severed head of Matthew Bellamont's mother. The mention of cheese may be in reference to Shiogar's Daedric Shrine quest in Border Watch. In Skyrim's Dragonborn DLC, you can come across a wizard that casts a spell attempting to fly like a dragon, but winds up ultimately falling to his death. This is a reference to a Bosmer enchanter in Morrowind called Teriel. Teriel falls from the sky at the bitter coast near Sidonine after an experiment goes wrong. Some Skyrim references delve even further back in the Elder Scrolls timeline. At the Winking Skeever Inn in Solitude, the bard sometimes plays the melody heard in stores in the Elder Scrolls II Daggerfall. Skyrim also has some fairly interesting cut content. One piece of unseen content in the game is an arena called the Windhelm Pit. The area can be viewed by entering the console commands COC Windhelm Pit Entrance and COC Windhelm Pit Exterior. Entering the Windhelm Pit spawns some Argonians, Nords, Dark Elves, and Imperial non-playable characters. They're all labeled Pit Fans and are supposed to be spectators for the fights. It's believed that this Windhelm Pit was going to be similar to the arena in Oblivion and that you would face off against animals and bandits. Dialogue attached to the pit suggests that you have been jailed there and forced to fight a bandit being targeted by the Dark Brotherhood, Elaine Dufont. This was changed before the game's release, instead having you face off against Dufont in a Dwemer ruin. There's also pit guards who are fully voiced, but they can't be viewed during normal gameplay. The game has other hidden spoken dialogue. If you use the set trace command to change a character into a child, it makes it possible to kill them. What's interesting is that children's deaths have voice audio attached. Additionally, if you use mods that allow you to kill the child character Braith, Lars Battleborn will approach you in Whiterun and thank you for killing her. His lines are fully voiced, suggesting you were originally going to be able to kill children in the game. The fact that these lines were also voiced suggests that this was likely cut later into the game's development. Something that seems to have been abandoned much earlier in development was using Charis as mounts for Falmer Riders. This idea can be seen in pre-production art by Bethesda concept artist Adam Adamovich. Adamovich sadly passed away due to complications of lung cancer in February 2012. He never got to see the final version of the world he helped craft. Some of the voices of Skyrim have an interesting background. Charles Martinet, the voice behind several characters in the Mario series, also voices the dragon Parthenax. And so perhaps your destiny will be fulfilled. Skyrim also has some small details that are easily overlooked. For example, after a dragon has been defeated, the effect of its burning remains can be seen in the game's world map. Another detail is that the appearance of the Draugar is randomized and not gender specific. This means the Draugar can spawn with a female body and a full beard. Did you know? Bioshock wasn't always going to take place in an underwater city. When the game was first teased, it was described as taking place on a tropical island with an abandoned Nazi laboratory. When asked about this, director Ken Levine explained that he actually made up the idea on the spot. Levine said, You know, I wish I could say I have my ducks in a row earlier than I do, but I don't. People were coming, I needed a story to tell them, and I came up with that. Despite this, the submerged setting of Rapture was one of the first ideas to emerge during production. Levine wanted to make Rapture believable and not detract from the game's horror theming. He decided that it made the most sense that Rapture's creators would want to keep it hidden from the outside world, and from there made the character and motivations of Andrew Ryan. 
When developing Ryan, Levine combined the personalities of several historical figures. This included businessman Howard Hughes and political philosopher Ayn Rand. In fact, the ideas that drive Ryan to create rapture are very reminiscent of objectivism, a philosophical doctrine developed by Rand. Though many saw Bioshock in the collapsed state of rapture as a critique of objectivism, this was not Levine or Irrational Games' intention. They simply wanted Bioshock to show what happens when any ideal meets reality, and objectivism was just an ideology that fit their story. Levine said, It's not an attack on objectivism, it's a fair look at humanity. We screw things up. You have this beautiful, beautiful city. The visual look of the city is the ideals. The water coming in is reality. Levine also believed that when philosophers such as Rand wrote novels like Atlas Shrugged to convey their ideals, they featured unrealistic protagonists. Levine sees Atlas Shrugged's hero, John Galt, as a superman who can do no wrong, doesn't go to the bathroom, and doesn't have doubts or fears. In contrast, the game's developers wanted to show that even people with the best intentions can be fallible. There are several subtle references to Rand's work hidden throughout Bioshock. An unused file in the game reveals the protagonist's full name as Jack Wynand, perhaps a reference to Gail Wynand from The Fountainhead, and Fontaine's alias Atlas is likely taken from Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged. All of the main antagonist bosses in Bioshock were designed to be reflections of Andrew Ryan. Each of them takes an ideal such as physical beauty or art and pushes it too far. Their lack of self-doubt and unwavering belief in their own correctness was scary to Levine, and contributed to the game's horror atmosphere. The character of Fontaine was created to be an ideological foil to Ryan, with Levine describing them both as extremists. While Ryan believes in his capitalist and objectivist ideals entirely, Fontaine is a nihilist who believes in nothing but himself. Because of this nihilism of all the characters in Bioshock, Levine believes that Fontaine is the only real monster. Levine is not a fan of cutscenes in video games, believing that there's better ways to tell stories in the medium. For Bioshock, he considered Valve Software's complete lack of cutscenes in Half-Life 2 a big inspiration. Irrational Games also drew heavily from Levine's background in theater, using tricks from stage plays to draw the player's eye. One example Levine points out is the player's first encounter with the Big Daddy, where the little sister it's protecting is illuminated by a spotlight. Interestingly enough, this encounter takes place in a ruined theater. Though Irrational made sure to keep control in the hands of the player, many of Bioshock's narrative themes involve taking control away from the player. Levine has commented on the state of player choice in the gaming industry, and how there's usually either an illusion of choice or no choice at all. The Would You Kindly twist in Bioshock was a commentary on players often following the instructions of a non-playable character without questioning their motivations or agenda. The player's confrontation with Ryan was the culmination of this idea, and the decision to have Ryan force the player to kill him was controversial among the developers. Many within the company questioned the player's motivation to do so, which Levine insisted was the point. He said, Ryan sort of had to show you that there are things that are more important than winning the fight. He could die, as long as he died with his ideology intact, and while showing you that you have no ideology, that you are nothing. To him, that was more important. It was really controversial, and getting that scene right took a lot of time. Although the foundations for the series had been laid, Bioshock 2 was not developed by Irrational Games. Instead, several former members of Irrational migrated to 2K Marin and began development of the sequel. In the same way that the first game drew heavily from objectivism, the ideas of Bioshock 2's antagonist Dr. Sophia Lamb are based on collectivist ideals. Specifically, Bioshock 2 creative director Jordan Thomas referenced the works of political philosophers Karl Marx and John Stuart Mill. 
Thomas also wanted to celebrate the idea of player choice instead of commenting on their lack of it. A viral marketing campaign for Bioshock 2 titled There's Something in the Sea was launched in early 2009. The campaign centered around the writings of fictional character Mark Meltzer, who was attempting to shed light on the abductions of little girls around the Atlantic Ocean. The initial idea of Something in the Sea was so popular that 2K started a second phase, opening a P.O. box under Meltzer's name and encouraging fans to write in to help piece together clues and participate in the real-world events. Though Something in the Sea was originally planned as a viral advertisement and nothing more, the success of the campaign led to Meltzer being included in Bioshock 2. One of Irrational's biggest disappointments with the original Bioshock was that they couldn't add any gameplay of the player outside of Rapture at the literal bottom of the ocean. They decided that in future titles they'd tie in as much gameplay to the setting as possible. After it was decided that Bioshock Infinite would take place in a floating city, developers began thinking of game mechanics that could be woven into the setting. Several ideas were considered, including introducing the ability of flight. Once the team started thinking about how goods would be shipped around the city, however, a rail system was introduced and flying was dropped. Levine enjoyed riding roller coasters as a child, and decided that allowing players to ride along Columbia's rail system would be both fun and take advantage of the city setting. Bioshock Infinite's Elizabeth was created to bring companionship to the more solitary style of gameplay seen in Bioshock. Specifically, Levine felt that having a character lead the player over the radio would be too similar to Bioshock. The team also wanted a character that protagonist Booker DeWitt could cooperate with in person. The earliest versions of Elizabeth and Booker didn't speak, as there were concerns about implementing a convincing dialogue system. However, Irrational quickly realized that this wouldn't do and that they had to make Elizabeth a more active part of the game's world and story. To make Elizabeth feel more alive, she was programmed to playfully interact with objects in the overworld while the player explored. Led by level designer Amanda Jeffrey, an entire team called the Liz Squad was created to help populate Columbia with items that Elizabeth could affect. Because of her lifelong confinement, Elizabeth's natural curiosity in these moments also fit her story arc, as she is seeing the outside world for the very first time. Initial designs for Elizabeth drew inspiration from the art of illustrator Charles Dana Gibson, and the princesses from Disney's animated features. In particular, early animations of Elizabeth were removed from the game as they were too similar to Rapunzel from the 2010 film Tangled. Early test reactions to Elizabeth were incredibly negative. Levine remembered asking a friend about his thoughts on the character, and he simply replied that he hated her. The team tweaked Elizabeth's character in multiple places to make her more likable. Specifically, Levine pointed to a moment early in the game where Booker and Elizabeth awaken on a beach. Originally, this sequence had Booker waking up on his own and finding Elizabeth dancing. When Irrational tweaked the sequence to show Elizabeth resuscitating Booker and ensuring he's okay before going off to dance, test responses became much more positive. Regardless, the design team continued to struggle with Elizabeth, with several of the developers even suggesting that they cut her entirely. Most of the issues were ultimately ironed out. Three women portray Elizabeth in Infinite and its advertising material. All of the motion capture for the character was performed by actress Heather Gordon, while Courtney Draper provided her voice. Finally, cosplayer Anna Maleva was used as the face of Elizabeth in the title's advertising material. Maleva was inspired to cosplay the character after seeing an early trailer for the game, and her work impressed Levine so much that he reached out to Maleva through Facebook and offered her the modeling job. When the official cover art of Bioshock Infinite was revealed in December of 2012, several news outlets criticized it for being generic and omitting Elizabeth entirely from the front of the box. Levine explained that the cover art was designed to draw in the more casual shooter audience. But in response to the backlash, a public poll was held to pick a reversible cover that shipped with every copy of the game. The soundtrack for Bioshock Infinite features covers of several songs released decades after the game's setting. This was done because music from the era might sound strange or simplistic to a modern ear. 
Several modern chord progressions had yet to even be developed. God Only Knows by the Beach Boys was chosen as the song sung by the Barbershop Quartet because of the film Boogie Nights. Levine later explained his decision in a Reddit AMA, stating, It was the song that played at the end of Boogie Nights, and that moment always moved me. Seeing how a group of very damaged people came together as a sort of family, I always wanted to use it in a game. Scott Bradley of the YouTube channel Postmodern Jukebox was invited to contribute to the soundtrack as well, where he covered Tainted Love, Shiny Happy People, After You've Gone, and Everybody Wants to Rule the World. There's a segment in Infinite where Elizabeth opens a portal to an alternate version of Paris, revealing a movie theater marquee that reads La Revanche du Jedi, or Revenge of the Jedi. This was the original title for Star Wars Episode VI before series creator George Lucas changed it at the last moment. A similar scene was also featured in the E3 2011 demo of the game, though the original plan was a little different. According to Levine, the portal in this demo was initially going to feature a primeval forest, but the visual was not as striking as Rational would have liked. So, instead, the developer recycled a high-impact neon setting from the assets of another cancelled project. Did you know? Gears of War started out as a class-based multiplayer shooter called Unreal Warfare. After Unreal Tournament, developer Epic Games wanted to focus on new ideas that showcased features of Unreal Engine 2. The game was an online arena shooter where the player could battle other users or even bots. It had multiple classes and robots could be deployed to suppress the battlefield. Epic demoed the game at Game Developers Conference 2002, where four soldiers explored cave networks that were strikingly similar to Locust Burrows. Unreal Warfare focused heavily on vehicular combat, and the game's villains were called Geist, an early version of the Locust. After several years of sporadic production, Unreal Warfare became Gears of War. Much of Unreal Warfare's assets were recycled in Unreal Tournament 2004, and the game mechanics from Unreal Warfare were used in Unreal Tournament 2004's Onslaught mode. Funnily enough, Onslaught was renamed to Warfare in Unreal Tournament 3, referencing Gears Origins. After pausing development to finish both Unreal Tournament 2003 and 2004, the studio returned to Unreal Warfare. They soon realized the gaming landscape had changed, and there was a sudden shift towards single-player campaigns. After playing Medal of Honor, Gears lead designer Cliff Blazinski decided to focus on solo play. Unreal Engine lead programmer James Golding told Games TM, We saw the rise of more campaign-based games, so we took Unreal Warfare back to the drawing board. It became just Warfare, got another name, then another name, we redid a whole bunch of the characters at this point too, and it slowly became more in line with the Gears of War we know now. Gears of War resurfaced with another demo in 2005. This time it was an unnamed tech showcase of Unreal Engine 3 running on the Xbox 360's Xenon processor. According to Blazinski, a lot of Gears' inspiration came from the failure of his first marriage and a visit to London. He gave the last name Phoenix to main character Marcus because Blazinski lost everything from the failed marriage and was rising from his own ashes. The song that got him through this difficult time was Gary Jules Mad World, which would be used in one of Gear's best known commercials. Jules and Andrew's 2001 cover of Mad World hit number one on the iTunes sales charts when the Gears of War ad aired. 
This was impressive considering the song had already been out for five years. Before pitching the idea of Gears to Microsoft, Blazinski did a bunch of push-ups in his hotel room and listened to Eminem's Lose Yourself to psych himself up. Pitching the game was difficult because, on paper, Gears seemed set to fail. It was a new IP with a new campaign being released on Xbox 360, which was an entirely new platform. Despite this, Microsoft greenlit the project. Producer Rod Ferguson has mentioned that people working on the Gear story constantly ignored suggestions to include romance. It was a story beat that they felt wasn't needed at all, and they had to fight to keep it out. Gear's writers left the lore relatively open so that author Karen Travis had more freedom with her novels. Asfo Fields is a prime example. It's only briefly mentioned in the first game, as the development team had no idea what it would be at the time. Travis later wrote about the battle and fleshed it out in her novels. The series was inspired by everything from Resident Evil 4 to Lord of the Rings. Resident Evil 4's third-person perspective inspired Gears' similar over-the-shoulder camera. Killswitch's tactical cover system and Bionic Commando's incorporation of platforms prompted the use of cover as a means to travel and accomplish objectives. This was done so the player wasn't constantly pushing forward with brute force. 80s horror movies such as Day of the Dead are the source of Gears' excessive violence. The game's gore was inspired by Evil Dead and the film focus on campiness. Epic saw violent acts like cutting someone in half with a mounted chainsaw gun as more slapstick than serious and wanted to focus on these absurd moves. In fact, Gears artist Pete Hayes stated that modern films with realistic violence were definitely not inspirations for the team. The Lord of the Rings' beastly Uruk-hai influenced the look of the Locust. Blazinski wanted Gears' villains to be savages that were actually intelligent. Like the Uruk-hai, the Locusts look vicious but have a deliberate tactical approach. Locust Boomers were also named after the similar-looking boomers seen in the anime Bubblegum Crisis. They also originally had larger stomachs and were called potbellies. The krill were inspired by creatures from the Vin Diesel film Pitch Black. The film is even referenced in Act 2, where Dom says, It's pitch black. No way we can get through. Other influences stem from Blazinski's real life. He gave the character Marcus blue eyes because Blazinski's father had blue eyes. Dom Santiago was originally supposed to be named Dom Glenn, but that was changed when Rod Ferguson pointed out a box of Santiago cigars on Blazinski's desk. He suggested the name, and it stuck. Dom's voice was altered during production and originally had a thick Mexican accent. The change was made because Blazinski was tired of hearing Speedy Gonzalez voices in Splinter Cell games. The team even considered letting players choose Dom's gender and the character would either be Dominic or Dominique. Another gender difference was with Lieutenant Kim, who was originally written as a woman. Marcus shouting nice was inspired by Ferguson himself, who'd often say the word. Augustus Cole was named after a level designer at Epic Games named Phil Cole. Damon Baird was named after one of Blazinski's childhood friends, and Baird's original appearance was based on American actor Dennis Leary. General Ram was named after the owner of an Indian restaurant that was near Epic's studio. Ram was a very late addition to the game. This can be seen in the game's story, as the reason behind players fighting him on the train couldn't be added in due to time constraints. This part of the story wasn't explained until the PC release of Gears of War, which featured five new story acts. The build-up to demoing the game at E3 2006 was stressful for Epic. Microsoft put pressure on Blazinski and his team to cut the game's iconic gruesome chainsaw attacks from the E3 build. Specifically, then-Xbox executive Peter Moore wanted the chainsaw rifle removed from the E3 demo just days before the show. Epic managed to keep the chainsaw in, and Blazinski was later told by Microsoft co 
co-founder Bill Gates, I love that chainsaw. When making Gears of War 2, Epic paid close attention to user feedback. They focused on balancing the game's difficulty, as many criticized the original game for being too difficult. According to Blazinski, the team made around 400 tweaks to the game's cover system, changing specific timings, distances, and angles of cover. This, however, was far from the biggest technical overhaul. The first game would often refer to the Locust Horde, but players never encountered more than a handful of locusts at a time. This was due to limitations with the game's engine and a lack of optimization. For Gears 2, improvements to the Unreal Engine allowed for over 100 locusts to appear at a time. The team also wanted to craft a deeper narrative for Gears 2. To bring more intensity and drama to the story, Epic hired sci-fi writer Joshua Ortega, who had previously worked on graphic novels for both Star Wars and Star Trek. Cliff Blazinski told GameTrailers.com about their process, saying, We basically built the game around this idea of water cooler moments, so that every 5 to 10 minutes there's something memorable going on. We really wanted players to feel like they're playing a Hollywood blockbuster experience from start to finish. The story of Gears 2 dealt with some difficult issues, such as the death of Maria. According to Blazinski, Maria's death was his own personal statement on Terry Schiavo. After suffering a cardiac arrest in 1990, Schiavo was resuscitated into an irreversible vegetative state. Schiavo's husband campaigned to have her feeding tube removed, reasoning that she wouldn't have wanted artificial life support without any chance of recovery. But Schiavo's parents argued that she was still conscious and that the tube should be kept in. After seven years of appeals and political intervention, Shivo's feeding tube was finally removed and she passed away. Blazinski firmly believed that Shivo had a right to death. The series has other, less gloomy references. The game's world, Sarah, is Ares spelled backwards, who is the Greek god of war. Artist Chris Bartlett actually created a map of Sarah, which was loosely based on the Middle East and featured Star Wars-inspired names. The map appeared in a Gears of War 2 cutscene, but was too murky to be read. The characters Jan Rojas, Gulis, and Anthony Carmine were all given names relating to the color red, in reference to them being red shirts. Red shirt is a term coined by fans of Star Trek the original series. If a character wasn't part of the main crew and wore a red shirt, they were almost certainly going to die. This terminal reference applied to all the Carmine brothers besides Clayton Carmine. In July 2010, Epic announced that fans would get to decide the fate of Clayton Carmine in Gears of War 3. Users were able to purchase shirts on their avatars for Xbox Live, reading either Save Carmine or Carmine Must Die. The shirt that sold the most would determine if Clayton was saved or killed off. Although Clayton was saved, Epic created an alternate ending depicting his death. The unused scene shows Clayton knocking a radio into the bathtub while he bathes, electrocuting himself. Originally, Hoffman was supposed to die in Gears of War 3. He was planned to take the place of Dizzy while traveling to the submarine and would have died as the player sailed off. However, writer Karen Travis didn't want to give up Hoffman due to his historical perspective. He's one of the few characters that knows what life was like before the war, and she didn't want to lose him as a narrative tool in the Gears novels. The story of Gears 3 was originally much different. According to Blazinski, I actually wanted to have the third game focus on the space race. Marcus and what was left of humanity would find a way off of Sarah before the entire thing exploded from emulsion affliction, later possibly finding another planet where they could restart. Then we saw 2012 and realized that idea, done poorly, would really box us in and be kind of dumb. 
The story of Gears was also affected by Blazinski hanging out with writer Joss Whedon. Whedon explained to Blazinski that whenever he was writing an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the show was at its best when he made Buffy suffer. Blazinski realized that some of his favorite moments in the Gears series involved Marcus Phoenix suffering, and this realization led him to including more hardships for Marcus. Did you know? Mass Effect's existence is the direct result of a Star Wars video game. In 1999, LucasArts asked Canadian developer BioWare to create a Star Wars game to tie in with the film Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. They gave BioWare the choice between designing the game around the story of the movie or to create a new story set 4,000 years before the events of Episode 1. BioWare chose the latter because they felt it gave them more creative freedom. This resulted in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. After finishing the game, some of the developers wanted to make a game with even more creative freedom, using their own universe and lore. So, the Knights of the Old Republic team began to work on a new IP with accessible, shooter-based gameplay, partially inspired by Deus Ex. This new game ultimately became Mass Effect. During the planning stages, special focus was centered around fantasy fulfillment, and so, players were given their own ship and a commanding role. It was decided that morality would be measured based on player choices, like in Knights of the Old Republic. But, rather than a single good or evil sliding scale, Mass Effect's morality system recorded actions on a different scale known as Paragon and Renegade. In Mass Effect 3, over 64% of players chose more Paragon options than Renegade, despite all the press attention on the Renegade actions. When asked if low statistics influenced the developers to stop providing these options in future projects, director Casey Hudson said no. He explained that even if gamers aren't picking certain choices, the fact that the option exists makes players feel that much more empowered. Another Mass Effect 3 statistic that surprised the developers was that more players saved the Geth than the Quarians. This gathering of player stats is part of BioWare's extensive process of analyzing player feedback. After the release of Mass Effect 1, the developers compiled an enormous list of comments from fans. The improved texture load times and larger range of customization in Mass Effect 2 were prioritized because of fan commentary. Another feature in Mass Effect 2 that fans are responsible for is the ability to select romance options with Garrus. Casey Hudson stated that after the release, Garrus became one of the most popular romance characters in the game. The anatomy of some alien creatures were inspired by Earth-life anatomy. The Krogan species were designed after art director Matt Rhodes had been sketching insects and bats. The faces of the Krogans were inspired by the Centurio Senex, or wrinkle-faced bats, from Central America. Originally, the eyes of the Krogans were on the sides of their heads, but this was changed because from an evolutionary standpoint, only prey develop eyes on the side, not predators. The Asari were designed after the writers decided they wanted a race comprised entirely of beautiful women. The hair-like fins were developed around the look of a modern human hairstyle. The result caused the creatures to appear quite aquatic in nature, which then informed other design choices such as their flat noses and clothing. The Asari's bright-colored skin tone was influenced by the distinct green-skinned Orion from Star Trek. The design for a single Asari male was drafted at some point during development, but it wasn't well-liked and was thus scrapped and has since been lost. 
The Solarians were inspired by the typical gray alien look known from science fiction and folklore. The writers wanted this race to be the explanation for alien abduction stories from humans prior to them becoming a galactic stage species. Morden's character design was inspired by Clint Eastwood in his older age. A series of amusing easter eggs can be found among the endlessly detailed environments of the Mass Effect series. Far too many to cover all at once, but here are a few fan favorites. On several explorable locations in the game, including the Earth's moon, strange sounds can be heard if the player remains still in very specific places. Although never confirmed by Bioware, it's speculated that these peculiar noises are songs from the believed extinct race, the Rachni. In Mass Effect 2, if the player stands near Legion for long enough, he will begin to do the robot. On the planet Novaria, during the mission to restore power at peak 15, the virtual intelligence Mira pops up and says, It looks like you're trying to restore this facility. Would you like help? This is a reference to Clippy, the annoying Microsoft Office pop-up helper. Shepard's renegade response is, oh crap, a pop-up. There's another reference when speaking to Mira in a different location. In the hot labs on the planet Novaria, after the player asks the Russian doctor for codes, a Rachni soldier will kill him. If the codes are not retrieved from his body, two options will be available at the Mira terminal. When mumble something is selected, Shepard will try to guess the code, saying, uh... Sick Semper <coughs> This phrase, Sick Semper Tyrannus, is Latin for thus always to tyrants, and has been invoked historically as a rallying cry against abuse of power. It's said to have been uttered by Marcus Junius Brutus during the assassination of Julius Caesar, as well as John Wilkes Booth during his assassination of Abraham Lincoln. In Mass Effect 2, if the player launches a probe at Uranus, Edie will make a crude remark, Probe Uranus. In Mass Effect 3, when Joker activates the stealth drive, he says, Only way they'll detect us is if you won't start singing the Russian national anthem. This is a reference to the hunt for Red October, in which an elusive Russian nuclear submarine, the Red October, undetectable by traditional means, is located by the American sub sonar after the Russian crew starts singing. When Shepard speaks to Captain Bailey in Mass Effect 2, Bailey mentions, Spending a year dead is a popular tax dodge. This is a reference to the second book in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, in which Ford Prefect tries to speak to his friend Hot Black Desiato, but is told that he is spending a year dead for tax reasons. One easter egg is a bit of an inside joke from the developers. A space cow on the planet Antaram is labeled shifty looking cow. If the player tries to speak to the animal, nothing will happen at first, but soon it will start to follow Shepard around and slowly steal his or her credits. According to the designer, Dusty Everman, when the character artist designed the space cow with two extra arms, Preston, our lead designer, was a little creeped out. His comment was, you can't trust any animal that can milk itself. Those extra little hands hands look so grabby. So Preston came up with the idea of Shifty Cow. Turn your back on him and those creepy little hands are going to go to work. Kiss those credits goodbye.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.